Jen Bosworth Ramirez. And I'm Gina Polici. We went to theater school together. We survived it, but we didn't quite understand it. 20 years later, we're digging deep, talking to our guests about their experiences and trying to make sense of it all. We survived theater school, and you will too. Are we famous yet? that had the same thing where they were trying to use video and it's like not working. So it's like tech, it's like nothing ever works. Like that's the other name of my solo show. It's like just nothing ever really works. Like we're always like, well, all this to say too, that I have come to the conclusion that we are in the time period of in history that I am now calling the great unraveling. Okay. So we've got the Mm. great unraveling going on. Now, listen, I I think it's sad, but also the good news is at the end of the unraveling, if humankind has still um, made it, we can build a new sweater. Do you know what I mean? Like we're gonna have to create. I a was new just sweater. gonna say, yeah, you get you go you keep going on that sweater, and you know that there's problems, but you're like maybe it won't look that bad. No, and you then, have to unravel the thing. Yes, at, at some point you say, and there's that you, term. Um, the myth of invested uh, yeah i know what you mean but it's like when you build when you buy into this idea well i've come this far i might as well keep going and don't keep going sometimes time investment yeah no there's like no um there's no telling like how good it can be to just call it just call something and be like i'm calling it Mm -hmm. you know like i'm calling it Mm -hmm. and um and and there is a tipping point of like and I think I've told the story about my drywall holes in my apartment the first apartment I ever had did I tell this story I don't think so okay this is where we are in history we are at this point where I was after my dad died I lived by myself for the first time ever and I got this little apartment and I decided I was going to put up a quote floating shelf, right? So you need to put holes in the wall and then you put Molly bolts <laughs> yeah. in and they expand. Okay. So, but you, but uh, thing number one, it was like a thousand degrees. No, call it. Okay. Could have called it there. Didn't in my apartment, no air conditioning, thousand degrees, summer, call it. I did not call it. I proceeded Two, investigate what your motherfucking walls are made of before you do this. Because plaster does not, it does not work out. So I started to drill holes with my Molly, with my drill. And I'm like, oh, that's interesting. The hole just kind of gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And I'm like, yeah, but I just have to keep going. So I kept going. And by the end, and then I had holes about the size of a tennis ball uh, in each and I was like, okay, but it, maybe it'll still work. Okay, dude, I looked around and then I moved the shelf around. So I had multiple holes thinking it was the spot in the wall that was the, pr- oh my God, I'm alone. I don't know what's happening. I have a drill. My dead dad left me. Like, I don't know what's happening. So I look around and there are giant, I'm sweating. I'm on the verge of tears and there are literally um, tennis ball holes all over the walls of my studio apartment. And I just think, and I, I, then I stopped and I was like, okay, this is, I don't know what made me stop, but I was like, okay, this is insanity. This is the definition of insanity because now the whole thing is screwed and I have to patch it all. It was the biggest lesson of my life of like, wait a second, inv- 
investigate before you start a project. And it reminds me of your family's project about the trains, like how one of your kids is really good about planning it out and stuff. I am not that way. And I'm learning to be more that way. So anyway. Yeah, that's a part that that is, I think, a big part of maturing. Like I, I have the same thing. I do a lot of little crafty things, sewing and stuff like that. And, um, it, the, they always tell you measure twice and cut once. And I've never wanted to do that. And I always have this feeling of like, it'll be faster. Yes. I have to, you know, and then one day I said, wait, what, what needs to be faster? I'm, this is literally like, there's no deadline on this. I, I, there's no reason not to take my time because it's so frustrating when you work, by the way, I remember the term, it's called sunk costs. And I am really susceptible to being like, well, I just got to keep, I, you know, I started, oh, I started on this path. God. I just, I got to just keep going. I, I don't know if you have told that story on the podcast. I, when you started to talk about your apartment and your dad, I was thinking you were talking about the phone. The oh phone my God. Your dad. He was always, to always. he was like, I can do it. And then he would end up literally, he would, he's not an electrician or a phone repairman. He had no skills in that whatsoever. And yet wanted to rewire my apartment so that I could have a phone jack in my bedroom. And it ended up being an eight hour thing where he was screaming and it was, and I had to buy him tacos at one point. I, I it was like really bad. Yeah. 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 I mean, the, the, be- like that could have gone either way, you know, because sometimes the um, indefatigability of youth makes us press on and then it works out. You know, sometimes that that's a good thing, because sometimes when you're old, you just know how many things can go wrong and you don't, uh, you know, try it in the first place. But there is something, gosh, we spend so much time in the effort of like doing things to seem like the person we want to be. Instead of just being like, hey, I, I'm, you know, in the case of your dad, I'm a very good child psychologist. Like, I don't know how to wire anything because of why would I? Because I wasn't trained in this. This is not my livelihood. I think men get, I feel like men have suffer with that. A lot yes. If they're not handy or whatever. Yes. They feel yes. Failing their masculinity. Yes. I mean, I just think you're right. Like, it is this sickness that we have. To, like, prove, you said it, I want to be seen as this kind of person. I don't even know for me if it's, like, I want to be that kind of person because I never even stop to ask myself, who, what kind of person do I want to be? So it's, like, the perception. And, and you talk a lot about that, about, like, managing perception and, like, who, you know, in, in, especially in theater school and then beyond. But, like, who do I want to be seen as? And that brings up, I don't know if you want to talk about Desdemona because I have so many things to say. Okay, please, so please. Gina, um, I we've talked on the podcast, I think it's aired, yeah, about Desdemona, like we found, well, Gina found, and her director had um, footage of Gina acting at the theater school, on a stage, in a play, well, in a classroom, it was a workshop, right? So, but it's still of a course. stage, it's a stage, oh, don't say of course, yes. that's hilarious. Okay, <laughs> it's a stage, yeah, I get it, of course, I was like, the yeah, anyway, um, so... Um, and then we, by the way, sorry to interrupt you, but students now don't ever have to do that. Students at the theater school now will never know know the pain of performing 95 classrooms, but anyway. Yeah. And, and uh, yeah, they have like 10 theaters. It's like ridiculous. Okay. So, um, this video is actually good quality. Like I expected it to be super shaky. Allison did a great, she did it right. Allison Zell. 
She taped it. Okay. I so, so she yeah. ha- she had a camcorder because there were no cell phones. So she must have had a, a camcorder or whatever they were called then. I think it was that. And um, there is it's footage of the whole play. It's the whole play, right? I yes. saw. Yeah, I didn't watch the whole play, but I watched Gina's scenes and Gina's monologue. And um, it is the year. What year is this? I'm going to say, like, 95. Okay. So, 1995. Or, yeah, 95. That's what I think it was. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, um, so 95. And Gina is playing the, I think, like, technically, you're, like, the handmaid this, the, of Des, your, your Desdemona's, your Correct. Amelia, right? Okay. Uh, was your name Amelia? Well, Amelia in the show Possibly. is... Okay. Okay, because I watched those four minutes. I didn't go back, and then I was gonna look at the script, and I forgot to. Okay, that's okay. That's okay. And so my reaction watching was, oh, the accent with which you said was crazy wasn't that crazy. Like I could understand what you were saying. You didn't sound. I expected you literally to sound like Anna Delvey from um, Inventing Anna, but you did not. Like it was, it didn't seem put on. And also it was, it, everyone else had an accent too. So it wasn't, but what I noticed was, yeah, it wasn't so bad, Gina. It was not so bad. The acting wasn't bad. The accent wasn't crazy. You looked great. Every, the play was actually really well done. Like I believed it. Yeah. She's a great director, Allison. I, I, I'll say all three of the MFA directors, cause I worked with all of them were really good. Shauna Flanagan and David Mould. I've been trying to get David Mould on the show. I don't. I have. I, have, I don't think he's anywhere on social media. But um, yeah, they were all really good. So I. I know I talk so much shit about like always being in workshops, but at least I had that experience because I've heard many stories of main stage shows directed by you know the sought after directors. I mean Joe Slog probably being the chief among them, and it just like wasn't that great. Of no, right. So. I mean, I. So how did you feel? We talked a little bit about it, but like, how did you feel? Were you scared to watch and then you hit play and how did you go into it? I wasn't scared. I was super excited because I, like I said, I I don't have any other footage of myself prior to the iPhone, I'll say. Um, So that was interesting. Um, No, and I, 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 I'll say this. I had so much more. I can, I can say with, some degree of confidence that I had so much more empathy for myself than I ever have reflecting on any, you know, previous period of my life. Because it's right that you would say that you would posit that I was going to be afraid because any other time in my life, I definitely would have. In fact, if I, if I had known that this footage existed 10 years ago, I would have said, I I don't, I don't want to see that. You know, I'm just, I'm not ready to see that, but I'm in a phase of my life where I'm really facing the things that happened to me. Hey, let me run this by you. I had this memory of when I was in high school. So my little drama crew, we were friends and we, we did pretty much everything together. And one of one among us really really always wanted to be in television and film and he was like he had an eye out for that sort of thing and you know how they have these things that come through these towns like 
at the hotel, at the local cheap hotel, and somebody's giving a seminar yes. on like how to break into yes. business. So he took us to one of these, and it was exactly like you imagine. It was a semi-conference room in a very low-budge hotel with those hotel chairs and and this guy. And, and I couldn't tell you a single thing that he talked about except for this. He looked around, he took a dramatic pause, and he looked around at everybody and he said, thin is in. And if you're not thin, you either need to get there or find another profession. Wow. And I thought, I bet you that is why. I bet you that is a big reason why. I, when I, by the time I was in theater school, I was not even approaching, thinking of, because of course, when I first wanted to be an actress, it was to be an actress in movies. Like, right. you know, that of course. was the goal, which right. I completely forgot about. <laughs> it was really only at the end of high school, right after this happened, and through theater school, that I thought, no, it's, it's only theater for me. And oh, because of that. Wild. I think so. I think it was because of that. And I think, I think, now look, uh, was I a fearful person who would take any opportunity to close the door in my own face? Sure. You know, it's, it, I'm not putting it on this guy. I'm more just saying like, wow, talking about the sort of like the Rashomon thing, like if what if he hadn't said that or what if I hadn't heard it? What if I hadn't been there? I, I don't know if it would have been any different. But so but I guess the thing I wanted to ask you is, do you have memories of like, can you point to any memory that you think might have shaped the direction yeah. you went in? Versus oh, my the God. You might have gone in? Oh my God. So, okay. So we had a high school drama teacher that was a closeted gay man that Mr. D who was, um, sort of um, himself, a portly gentleman, older. Um, he was, uh, there were two, by the way, there were two drama teachers at Evanston Township High School, one of whom was convicted of sex crimes and went to jail and later like like the it was a big scandal the creator of lost who who went to evanston came out and said jj abrams no um 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 it's uh lieber not he didn't do lot abrams and it's this guy jeffrey lieber <clears throat> um and he came out and said hey this guy who we all thought was quirky and whatever, Mr. Seaworth, and it was, it's on the, in the news. You can look it up. He was actually a, a predator and this is what happened to me and I'm going to the police. And then people started coming forward. Okay, fine. So it was Mr. Seaworth and Mr. D, Mr. Ditton. I think he, he's passed away, but I'm not sure. And Mr. Ditton had a, had a wife, but was, you know, anyway. So came out later, of course, in all the things. But about Mr. Ditton, which is his, per I get it. You're persecuted. Do what you need to do. I, that's not my beef with Mr. Ditton. So we were doing Auntie Mame. And um, I was Agnes Gooch, of course. And my best friend, Heather Burns, was Auntie Mame. And so there is a scene where... 
Agnes Gooch has to wear a dress of Auntie Mame's. And Mr. Ditton said, well, it's totally not believable that you would fit into a dress that Heather wears. I don't know how that's going to be believable. We're never going to make that happen. And he was obsessed with her and particularly her, her body, right? As a, so gross. So that was one moment where I was like, oh, I'm always, it's never going to be, I'm never going to be the star. And so many tragedies are littered with people like this thing that came out um, when Jeanette McCurdle, however you say her last name, wrote her memoir. And then she named it was kind of funny. I, I listened to that audiobook as soon as it came out. And I was surprised when she when she calls the, it, him in the book, the creator, but then there wasn't the creator of the show, iCarly, but then there was one other instance, just one time where she referenced somebody that we knew was the creator and she called, she said his name was Dan. So that they later, she went back in subsequent editions and his first name isn't in there anymore, but you know, it seems like maybe that was sort of somewhat intentional. So that evinced all of these people coming forward and talking about their horrible experiences with Dan. And of course, he had a horrible childhood where he was mercilessly teased. And it's like, you almost have to think like, this is all just a bunch of miscommunication. Yes. Like Mr. Mr. D was just talking about it. Yes. He was just talking about how like he could not yes. fit into Heather Burns' yes. dress. And what he was probably really saying was like a woman like Heather Burns, even though she was a girl at this point, would never have a guy like correct me. or whatever yeah, and, and need, needing to put you in your yeah. place or whatever, i mean it know? was just yeah. so yeah. and i was devastated but i also was like okay but here's the thing here and then but there was also a lesson in this which was this was so interesting later in rehearsals he said mr d said thank god we have agnes gooch she's the only thing in the show worth watching which is also horrible to say but i was but really I fucking that, good yeah yeah, yeah. and yeah. and so i was like oh so this is so weird like i'm not wanted but i'm saving the show this is so weird i don't know what's happening so I just feel like, yes, these are moments and it does. And when we interview guests, I am struck by the, the, um, oh gosh, what I, what I'm struck by is, and, and when I watch art now and listen to stories is the brief seconds it takes to destroy someone's life. And then if you take it into, um, even more to the extreme, because of course I'm interested in murder, how quickly you can kill someone. And I would yes, say that goes yeah. true for emotionally or actually in real physically kill someone. So it doesn't take long to snuff out a life. It doesn't take long to snuff out hope. And that is what I am left with constantly when our guests talk about the things that have happened to them. I'm like, oh my God, it takes two seconds. That that guy in that conference room, took it took less probably than 30 seconds to destroy um, all this hope. And I, and I, I think that it's like, ultimately I wish people could go back and heal themselves. So they don't say things like that. But even if you're not fucking healed, just keep your fucking mouth shut. Like that's the other part. It's like, okay, I don't expect you to work it's on always, your shit, but yeah. keep your mouth shut. Yeah. It's always an option to not say anything. Like I, 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 I think about that all the time. Like you don't nobody needs to hear absolutely every thought that's in your head in fact 90% of them you should really just keep as inside thoughts because 
yeah, because people people who are careless with their words are usually people who are living a somewhat unexamined life. And that's why I'm obsessed with that movie, Defending Your Life, because this notion yes. that you could go back and review your life. And I think the point of the movie was more about like, you know, just, just moral decisions that you make. But I would love to have, what if there was a stenographer who, who you know, kept kept notes on every single thing that ever happened to you in your life. And you could, when you had this uh, fear or this, self-loathing that you couldn't really figure out you'd turn to the stenographer and you'd say when did I first get the idea that I was both so funny that I could save a show yet so unworthy that I couldn't whatever fit into this lead actress's dress like where did that come from because maybe that would have allowed you to say oh him oh I don't care about him. Like, he doesn't really matter in the scheme of things, right? It's so true. And I, you know, I I do keep sort of uh, copious notes, like, on certain people, the things they've said, because I feel like um, um, they're... And I did this with my parents, too, because I feel like in a family like mine... There's so much gas, and a lot of families, gaslighting, where it's like, I never said that. And I'm like, oh, yeah, on October 3rd, you know, tw- you know, 1990, you told me that I was, you know, I have stuff like that. Because in my family, people tried to make you feel like you were insane and that you didn't, they didn't actually say the things. I'm like, this is insanity. And so with my existing family members, oh, I have a list. Oh, I should the conversation ever come up? I am one to remember and I'm a writer. So it's the other thing. It's like dudes and my writing teacher who I adore, kooky, kooky, amazing Terry said, you know, Anne Lamont said, if you don't want to fucking be written about, don't fucking fuck me over because I'm a fucking writer. That's not really all she said, but you know what I mean? Like you better watch it, man. People remember people write shit down and people remember. Mm -hmm. So don't think you're getting away with any, that's the other thing. I'm like, you thought bad parenting and bad, just whatever bosses, you think you're getting away with something? Oh, no, no. Best believe somewhere someone is keeping a goddamn record. And when your time has come, it's come. Yeah. You know, My favorite thing in movies, my favorite sort of like um, trope or theme is when somebody thinks that they're about to never see this other person again. So they say some terrible whack shit. And then there's like the camera reveals that actually, or like when the tables turn, that's kind of my favorite. And I think it's because I would love to have that. I would love to have the experience in my life or I do love Which, it when I ever have had gotten yes. it. Which is why Gina, I don't know if you've ever, it's the worst movie, but it is that device the whole movie, which is the mirror has two faces with Barbara Streisand. Oh my! And Jeff Bridges, I think, and it, and her sister's the beautiful. It is the best fucking version of that. And her mom is Lauren Bacall, the most beautiful woman. And at the end, of course, she comes into her own. And look, it's filled with bullshit about dieting and stuff like that. But it is 
it's so satisfying because she gets to come into her, her own and put everybody in their place. And she says to her mom, the things that I always wish I could say to my mom. And it was just so interesting. And, and anyway, yeah. so you need that man. I watch it over and over and everyone is like, why are you, why? this is the worst fucking movie. And I'm like, I gotta watch it. It's my movie. It's my movie. Yeah. It's your thing. Yeah. And you know, apropos of like something so really insignificant having so much gravity it you know it'd be like if it'd be like if oh the only barrier to you getting to follow your hopes and dreams is that um you have brown eyes and you know brown eyes is just not acceptable and so therefore you know automatically seeded out of the population of you know is people with brown eyes and then and because somebody tells you that and they seem to have some authority, like in the case of this guy, he probably never did anything in Hollywood, you know, because he was talking to a bunch of teenagers in a hotel. <laughs> in, in, a, in a Howard Johnson in Sacktown. <laughs> exactly. But what's in what he's imbued with before I even walk in the door is he knows this is a person who knows. And if you think about the number of assholes you've run in, you've known in Hollywood and to think every single one of them has probably had the opportunity to hold forth on what, how it works and who's, who's acceptable and who's not acceptable and how that's just wildly skewed the, 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 you know, the, the, the future, the course of things. It's just just making me, yeah, it's making me think like all of childhood, adolescence and young adulthood is about being gaslit over and over and over. And like being told one thing that isn't true, lied to. A lot of it is like Mm -hmm. being lied to because someone made the rules up that aren't even really rules. It is so, it's like a cult. It's like a cult of like, you're not good enough, a cult. And now I'm realizing, and you know, what's really interesting where I am finding this is so crazy solace and accountability is on LinkedIn this is the weirdest thing but people on LinkedIn now there's a lot of um people women and creators recruiters all these people coming out and saying this is not your father's or grandfather's professionalism this is how we're doing things now and get out of the way if you cannot and I'm like all for it I am all I it it, a lot of them aren't in entertainment has nothing to do with the arts and I am like for it it's a lot of recruiters and it's a lot of um like health there's this woman who's like a healthcare online healthcare advocate she's like brilliant and she's also started her own business of like telehealth something anyway she's dope her name is Lauren and she says she drops this knowledge and she has nothing to do with entertainment she's in the healthcare sector and she's like no no we don't do this anymore and if you she her thing this morning was if a company or an organization says can you hit the ground running we really need you to what you say especially as a woman back is oh great what are the systems set up in place to help me do that what are you gonna do to help me hit the and I was like oh my god it's mind-blowing to me and I'm like yes because now we're turning the shit back on the on the on the people and saying wait this is not gonna work anymore you you this is not how we do shit anymore and more and more people on LinkedIn are like no this is not how we do shit I'm like oh my god Mm -hmm. yeah that's amazing yeah I was just recalling um the other day to somebody how um when I was having I had that terrible experience well mixed experience of doing that traveling theater yeah and um 
and hating it and calling my dad and calling my mom and being like, I hate it. And my dad always said, hey, it's just three months. You could stand on your head for three months. And it was only like within the last five years that I said, oh, nobody can stand on their head for three months. That's not, that's not a good, <laughs> that's not a good thing. No, you'll die. You probably I, die. Because I literally thought, that's right. You could stand on your head for three months. I can do this for three months. No, actually you can't. No. And there, and, and I love whenever somebody breaks down for me, like in our language and stuff where things come from. And, and the more, you know, the more, you know, that everything comes from just like this very small and select group of people, like our entire worldview and, and a group of people that's shrinking and shrinking and shrinking by yeah. the day. Oh, they're so dying. It is yeah. time to, yeah. It is time to say, no, we don't, we don't do that anymore. And you don't get to no. make up the rules anymore. You had your chance and you royally fucked it up. Today on the podcast, we are talking to Paul Oakley Stovall. Now, you guys, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say something I never say. Paul was one of our top 10 guests, to be sure. We loved talking to him. He's so engaging. He's so smart. He's so wise. He's been on everything. He's been on every television show and in every play. Uh, currently, he's touring, playing George Washington in Hamilton. He has done it all, seen it all, lived to tell the tale. I really, really, really enjoyed talking to him, and I know that you will like hearing him. So please enjoy our conversation with Paul Oakley Stovall. Nice to be here. You know, as I was saying to you, life has been very, very tumultuous in the past month. And, you know, this had fallen out of my brain. And when I got the email that it's tomorrow or the email that it's in 36 hours, whatever it was, there was a momentary, like, I need to email them and say I can't do it. And then right after that, I said, it's the perfect time to do that, to do this. Oh, yay. Because things are turning a corner and, you know, I want to talk about how I'm handling all this. And the theater school, for better or for worse, has a lot to do with how we handle our lives, you know. Okay, good. I love it. That's a great jumping off point. So I always start by saying, congratulations, Paul Oakley Stovall, you survived theater school. And if I'm not wrong, I think you survived the same one that we did, the theater school at DePaul. Yeah. Okay, great. Yes, because Gary Mills, is the he mentioned you in, in his episode. We're in the same class, yeah. He mentioned me. What did Gary Mills say? He said it's so great. He said it's so great. It was the same week that, that uh, Strange Loop um, won. And so he said it's so great to see my classmates. Like, And I think he maybe alluded to the fact that you didn't have a great experience at the theater school. And that, but wow, have you made so much of your career and like, good for you. (laughs) The laugh. Okay, so wait, I have to like, because we were talking about it. I have to say, or ask, what is making your life tumultuous right at this moment? Uh, So my father passed away in January of, 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 20, where, where are we? 2022. You know, since, since COVID, none of the years don't matter. This past January. And so my mom's doing okay, but I think it has taken about 
eight or nine months for the actual grief to set in. And so now I began to realize when I would speak to her and FaceTime with her that she's kind of not doing emotionally what she's kind of not doing well. You know, she's always been a loner. She's always been tough. She's like, I'm fine. I'm fine. And I realized I have to leave Hamilton. I've been in Hamilton for four years and the schedule of any doing a play, we know, but the schedule of a show like that, touring and the pressure, I can't be there for her the way I need to. And I just had to have that talk with myself and say, this isn't the biggest thing in the world. Your mom is the biggest thing in the world. And there is no choice. There is no decision. You will leave and Hamilton will go on and on and on and on and on. And maybe they'll ask you back sometime, but you got to go. So just, you know, accepting that that's what I need to do. And then immediately when the decision was made, other opportunities have come that have made it I can do these because it's easier for me to get to her and make time. That, I mean, I, I feel that. like that, yeah, I love that too. And I feel like the decision, it's interesting. There's a like a lot of work that it takes to get to the decision. But once you realize the decision, I'm the kind of person, it sounds like you are too. And I think maybe like you just go in that direction and then yeah. you make a decision. And so, so good for you. And where are you located right now in the country? And where is your mom? I'm in a beautiful Airbnb in Columbus, Ohio. It's my last city on tour. Uh, so I, I really made sure that I went all out on this Airbnb. <laughs> I would have done this from the rooftop deck of my Airbnb, but I was afraid I wouldn't get the Wi-Fi. Uh, and my mom's in Little Rock, Arkansas. My parents raised me in Chicago, so I'm a city boy. But as soon as I graduated from DePaul, they moved back south to Little Rock because they were just always more comfortable in the south. and they were sort of the pillars of our family on both sides of the family. So they needed to be closer to relatives who were getting older back then. Okay, so this is an, in yeah, a nice tradition wanted, yeah. that you're continuing that and, and being close to your mother to help her out. That's beautiful. So did you yeah. always want to be an actor even when you were little? I think if you ask my mother, I just always was one. She, this is, that's why this is perfect timing because the time I've been spending with her, I took a whole month off of Hamilton to be with her and that's when I made the decision to leave. She was just so thrilled to have me home and she would say, oh, you know, even when you were three, we'd go back south to visit grandma and they'd, ha they'd have like the Easter presentation at church and you would say, ma, ma, I have something to do. I have something to perform. And she's like, oh, no, you don't. You're just seeing the people up there. And you were like, no, 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 I do. And she said, your grandmother was like, let him go up there. Let him say whatever he says. It doesn't matter. And she said, you stood up there and you said, welcome to Easter day. I have something to say. This is going to be a great day. Have a happy Easter day. <laughs> oh, yes. Like, like she, my mom still knows the poem and she still knows how she was holding her program over her face. And, you know, we, we did, uh, it, in kindergarten, we did a performance of, um, you know, f uh, like Little Miss Horner, you know, the little uh, nursery rhyme characters. And I was, I was Jack in the Box, and my mom's friend had made me a special costume, and I'm sitting inside the box, literally in a box. So I'm in complete darkness at five years old, waiting for my cue. Within the complete darkness, I'm sort of adjusting my costume and I feel a hole in the crotch. So I have a hole in the crotch and I know that at any moment, it's my turn, they're gonna open the box and I have to pop out and be Jack in the box. 
And in the darkness, I solved the problem, uh, you know, tucking, tucking the thing and holding it under my hand and getting it fixed and then coming up and doing the thing, knowing what was messed up. So I had that secret that actors have. I know what's how the machine works behind the curtain. So even at five years old, in that smallest example of things, we work in the darkness, we solve problems, we grow like roots in the ground, well, and then we spring up. Let's be honest, because my well, ass would have been like, I can't do this. I'm gonna, I gotta, I'm done for. I'm gonna go be, well, gonna go work at Baskin Robbins the rest of my life. But I, I think it was the best way I could answer her question of, did you always know you were an actor, or when did you know? It's that's the moment where I knew I could solve a problem and do it, and that that I knew the secret of acting is just being brave enough to find yourself in the moment and not show, never let them see you sweat type of thing. And also just the professionalism that you yeah. had at five, which was yeah. that you were aware that like this was almost a job, right? And to do a good job, you had to hide the hole in the crotch. Right. And I feel like that is um, sort of a what I would call a theater or acting intelligence that you seem to have clearly from a very young age and good for you. That is like a pro. Well, uh, yeah, and a lot of people depending on you, right? Your show must go sure, on. It's the sure. show must go on, yeah. Paul, you just made me understand something I never understood before, which is one of the elements of the magic that I always think of when I think of live performance is the secret. I, I never really put that word to it, but it is the secret. Like, I know what's going on backstage, and I know, and and at, after you've done that, when you watch a show, you think, God, that was a fast, quick change. How, you know, <laughs> where were they all set up? So I have to ask, you know, what is a moment of your Hamilton experience where there was a delicious secret, you know, something w went wrong or, you know, you solved a problem like you're talking about without the audience knowing? Wow. Well, you're going to edit all this, right? Because I'm going to name one, but I, I just feel like there's a better one brewing that I can't think of. So, so if I come back to it, uh, I'll come back with a better one. But, um, you know, we have local dressers. So we, we, we do have a wardrobe crew, but each city you have locals that you meet for the first time and you have, you, you know, you get there on Tuesday, you do sound check and then you open. So you have that little 15 to 30 minutes if you have any quick changes to run through it with the person. And it's almost like you're more reassuring them than they are reassuring you because you're letting them know I've been doing this tour forever. It's going to be fine. Don't worry. This is how this goes. Just make sure you hold it so it's open with this side and we're it's fine. Well, we got to we got to whatever city we were in and I I could tell as I was describing the change and running through it that the person was more starstruck to be around Hamilton cast members. And I said, "Oh boy, I'm in trouble." <laughs> that would have been me. That would have been me. I'm in trouble. I'm in real trouble. So we get to my my quickest change, which is about a 17 second change after Wait For It into Stay Alive. I go from bare parchment into full, back into full George Washington regalia for a scene with Hamilton. And it's a, whoo, whoo, I'll do this. The sword is being put on me by someone else. I just reach my arms back, you throw it up over my shoulders, turn around, the hat's there, I put it on, give me some water, and I go. Well, the sash, <laughs> I mean, you guys know what happened. Like the sash was backwards. The hat, she forgot the hat. 
And then she went running and I was trying to tell her, never mind. Like, I'll do the scene without the hat. But she bumped into about two or three people. So it turned into a domino thing. And I had to then, I have no choice because the Ham Hamilton's like an opera. It just goes. <laughs> right. there, there's, a, there's no Harold Pinter moment where you know somebody can vamp until you get out there. It goes. So I went on out knowing that I wonder what's happening backstage. You know, I hope she's going to be okay. She probably peed her pants. I was oh, like, she, I'm committing Harry Carey. Is what she, I was was, she was gone the next day. Not and not be, and not because and not because Hamilton got rid of her. No, we don't care. care. No, she was she literally died of embarrassment. <laughs> she was so mortified. She was so mortified she left. Yeah. Oh my god. Well if you're listening I hope she's listening. She might be because she probably knows she probably looked you up and said, Oh my god, did just this human talk shit about me and how bad I was and here you are being lovely. I've and never yeah, yeah. Okay, so here's the thing. My Hamilton story is that you you didn't do the LA one, right? You're no. not in the L okay. I know so all I, of them. We all know each other, but Okay. My Hamilton story is that I I just real quick, I did not, I didn't know about Hamilton. I thought, oh, I write true crime and murder. What do I know about Hamilton? My nieces and nephew are all up in it. And I'm like, okay. And then a friend of mine was like, I got you a ticket to LA. I began to scream and wail at how wonderful the show was that I was seeing to the point where the person next to me, I had a seat alone and we're in masks and all, and the person next to me moved because I literally kept hitting her going, did you see how brilliant that is? That, and the lady moved because I couldn't contain myself. And this was only like a year ago. And I, and then at the end of the show, I leapt up and started like, making sounds and and I was had really good seats and I had the experience of being completely transformed in that uh, in that during that show into someone who was like a firm believer in the genius of the show and the actors and also you know I had to put a guy in his place this this guy in front of me was like talking shit about how this show wasn't as good as the other tour. He's like was a Hamilton. Oh, 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 and right. I said, "Excuse me, sir." I said, "I've never seen it before, and I will tell you, I, <laughs> you and I are going to get into a fist fight if you keep talking because I couldn't do." I said, "Could you go up there and do and move those chair, throw those chairs around on stage like these people?" And he looked at me like, "Oh my God, she's crazy." So I, anyway, the point is, I am a firm believer in the power of that show in that it took someone like me who didn't want to see it and actually was like okay i'll go to be like there is something genius happening on this stage especially as like a latina lady who has never seen anything about history that involves anyone looking even remotely like me i was mm -hmm. like i'm in i'm well, in and and it's it's the power of theater too it's a well-made i mean you know let's break it down and then we'll get on to theater school it's we use chairs a turntable there's no helicopters flying in. There's no limo. There's no Cadillac coming on stage and special stuff. We we do make believe. We play we play make believe with chairs, and we change scenes and we change from the battlefield to this simply by saying we're on the battlefield and believing it with our bodies. 
And it's really old school that is what is the genius of it. So it's the power of theater. You're reminded, oh, that's right. Theater used to be the women went out and hunted and then they came back and made a fire and told everyone about the hunt. And we all sat and they wore the skin of the lion and one of them was the lion. And that's 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 it. That that's it. And if you if you if you give in if you give in to that, then not just as an audience member, as an actor, see, we sometimes you have people who are like, you know, six, seven years on, Hamilton has become like, if you get in Hamilton, I'm in Hamilton. Wait a minute. You still have to work and get better every day. Again, this is how I survived the theater. If if there's a good way to circle back to theater school, one thing it implanted in me was no matter how I felt about it when I graduated, as Gary alluded to. I, I had a skill set that always made me want to get better until my dying breath. So, and and I would say that that skill set yeah. then translate into success in the industry and beyond. So, thank you to those skills that you probably came to the theater school with that were sharpened and then mm -hmm. allowed you to really branch out and do a millions of things. But yeah, mm -hmm. let's, we can circle back. So like, were you like, a, were you like a kid that was like always destined for the theater school or like a theater school? Were you I think, I think a theater school, uh, my parents were of the intelligentsia, the, you know, the black intelligentsia. So they wanted me to be in that world. And I in fact got a, full ride scholarship to University of Illinois Champaign in chemical engineering. So I had that level of, of yeah, I had that level of analytical and, and math, math was a thing. But I always understood that math is what's gonna help me in theater. I always understood that it was called liberal arts and sciences for a reason, because art and science, the best scientists were the dreamers and the best artists were mathematical in some way about their art. Not the best, not 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 the best. You know, yeah, there are some who are just like poly. You know, but if you think about the Da Vinci's and the Michelangelo's, they were super curious and intelligent and mathematical about the world and into science. So I always wanted to have a balance, and um, I, I knew that I'd go to a theater school. It was just a matter of how would I navigate my parents allowing that to be. It wasn't as hard as you think but i did i was savvy enough to know it at that late teenage age i need to go to university of such and such and take a year to study chemical engineering take russian for a semester take these other things meet meet the kind of meet the kind of kids who aren't theater majors you know meet meet, meet the actual world out there and um because so you, you know, did that theaters, you so yeah. what did you do? Oh, I went. I went to University of Illinois Champaign for a year. <laughs> so did every. My mother went there too. So you went there. But boss, I have to. I have to interrupt for one second. Isn't this what Tremel did? Didn't he study chemical engineering before he went to? I can't believe you're not the first person we've had on here <laughs> who started in chemical engineering. In fact, I think you're at least the third or fourth science person who ended up into theater. So like break break that down for us for people who would who could never gun to my head pass one course for chemical engineering. Well, I mean, there? I've got to uh also come clean with in your first year of that major, you can get all of your electives out of the way. So I was in like a film history class and like I like I said I took Russian and I was taking the basics, but I was not into like building rocket ships or anything like that. Not in my first year. 
And, but 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 I also and I and I wanted to I was the most prim and proper kid in high school and I wanted to party a little bit. And University of Illinois is a party school. And I wanted to experience that social networking and what that was about, whether I'm included or not. You know, I met a I met a guy who was three years older who had let me borrow his fake ID, you know, to get into the bar that didn't care about your fake ID anyway. But you know, just those things that you have to do to. Yeah. So, so yeah. did you go there, but you had a plan? You were like, my yeah. plan is I'll go. Okay. But like, that's so interesting because you also were, had the ability to wait. Like it reminds me of Aaron Burr's song, Lying in Wait. It's like, you're not, you knew, which by the way is my favorite song. And I cry like. Oh, mine I, too. I oh, because my parents are both passed and all the things. And I'm sort of, anyway, the point is you, you had a plan. It's very Hamilton-esque. You had a plan to go to U of I, you went to U of I, but always knowing that you were going to then take a leap into a conservatory or you were going to see how it went or what was that? Well, I didn't know it would be a conservatory. I knew I just wanted to be in a big city. Like, I'm not even sure I knew what a conservatory was. I, I knew that I was going to not just go out, you know, with a suitcase and a dream on a bus to New York. But I, I, I just didn't know what school I was going to go to. You know, in my mind, I thought it might have to be a school that I can pay for myself because my parents might say we're not paying for this. That's a possibility. But when it came time to audition, as I researched the theater school and you had to audition, I had to tell them this is I'm auditioning. And so they drove me downtown Chicago with two of my uh, high school friends who had been in the theater program in high school with me, who were running my monologue with me on the way downtown. And um, I knew then that since they were going to drive me down there, they knew like there's no stopping him. He's so, he's so, he's so conniving, not conniving, but uh, that's not the word. He's so calculating. He's so calculating that if we tell him no, we'll lose him. So rather than lose, rather rather than lose him, let's understand that he clearly is going to do this. He loves machinations and figuring things out, and he'll do it. But and if we're not careful, he'll be off somewhere far, far away doing it. Correct. Right. You'll go. Yeah. You'll you'll make it happen one way or the other. So that's yeah. some good parent. That's actually some really good parenting there. Like yeah, instead it's good of parenting. Definitely. Yeah. They got it. They understood you. Yeah. My also. They had already kind of gone the business route that they wanted. So they were like, ah, oh, let's let the younger one bop around and see what happens. And, you know, who knows? Yeah, maybe he'll, nice. maybe maybe he'll get his dream crushed and we need to be there for him so he can go back into chemical engineering. There you go. Oh, they well played. Well played, parents. So yeah, they played it. They played you, it well. Do you remember your audition and what they had you do, like the group part of it? Yeah, they, yeah. <laughs> it was, uh... It was in a building that we never went back into my entire time at the theater school. It was kind of um, uh, on the corner of Lincoln and Fullerton or Halsted. You know that, you know that Halsted, Lincoln, Fullerton trifecta. So if you go south along uh, Lincoln, there was this sort of black gates in this building right there. I don't know what it is now, even if it's even there, but they sort of commandeered that building for the day and between your audition you could be out in the little yard the little courtyard area waiting for what's next because after your monologue they would either say thank you or they'd say go wait 
And so I waited. Um, my parents were off having lunch somewhere with my friends and um, they called me back and we just had to move around. You know, I don't I don't totally remember it, but I remember it was my first time in a group situation doing like, you know, what is this ball? Make it something else and throw it to the next person and that kind of thing. And that kind of thing. But what I noticed more than anything is I was the only black person in the sure. room. What year and are we this, talking? This, this, what this year? Is, this is 87. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm sure you were the only this black person in your class. There ended up being there ended up being three of us. Wow. Okay. But I, I will say that we had. We I had will say. I'm, oh, really? In our class? We had Stephanie. Well, we had a, a, well, we a, had Stephanie, and then you graduated with Erica. But that, yeah, that was it. Yeah, and that was ninety-seven and ninety-eight. So we didn't. They, wow. They, they, yeah, yeah. It's a sad state of affairs. Uh, okay, so you noticed that, and what did you think? Like, is this normal for me you to notice this at this age, or what? Well, it was. Uh, you know, at the University of Illinois, I had seen so many different types of people. And in my high school, we were about 35% black, 15% Hispanic, and 50% white. So I was in a South suburb, you know, so I I was surprised. But I also noticed that these kids seem to have a lot of money, in my opinion. And that includes like the Gary Mills types to me. Maybe he didn't. I didn't know. But, you know, I would see someone like him and the hair is perfect and the little polo is perfect. And I was like, oh, I'm not sure they're going to want me in here uh but it all worked out really you thought that because you didn't come from as much money as the other people that they wouldn't want you in the program well i think it crosses your mind because i think it crosses your mind of how am i going to pay for this or do they think he can't pay for this or is is this is is this more elite than i thought it was you know have i stumbled into yeah the other thing is is just that i am what keeps coming across my mind is like how little progress has been made in the American theater or in America. We, I mean, it could get bigger and bigger. I mean, we could go out, but like, especially in Chicago, in the theater, in the eighties to the nineties to the two thousands, so little freaking progress in terms of real equity in the conservatories and it's gross so to hear that i just think of a, how old were you were you like because you had done one year uh well i no i had also uh skipped a grade when i was younger so i actually actually this evened me out now be, oh so you were the same age as yeah, everybody yeah i graduated high school at 16 and then did that year at u of i so i was like 17 about to turn 18 in the fall okay just like us yeah, these yeah. are kids and yeah. like to look around. Okay, so you, so did they tell you, did they send you a letter? How did you find out from the theater school that you were in? You know what I mean? Oh gosh, I th- no, I think it was a letter. Yeah, it certainly wasn't a phone call. It was a letter. Yeah. Did you audition and, for and... other schools? No. Uh, just like me, this, just like me. So, okay, I'll, I'll tell you, day one, I walked in and looked around at everybody and said, oh, everybody already knows how to act. Like, I thought I was going <laughs> to learn how to act when I came here. These people have already been commercials and movies and stuff like that. So what was your experience when you actually began and started to do the work? I quickly realized that uh, technique-wise and skill-wise, I was okay. 
Uh-huh. Because okay. I had I see here's the thing. I had lived a life as a black man in America or a black young man, a black teenager, and discovering my sexuality, so a closeted black teenager. I had lived a life of knowing how to bob and weave and how to create something out of nothing. So when Don Ilko would say, you're just going to go bring everything for your bedroom and lay it out and then exist in your bedroom, I could do that. These kids were trying to like do something. And I'm like, usually I just sit around. I don't do nothing because I'm not included in things. Like that was my safest place to be. Or if you had to, you know, mime or pretend or speak gibberish for Rick Murphy, that was so easy for me. Those things were my safe place. It was when I would get to when I got to third year analyzing scripts and Dr. Bella, who told me, you're so intelligent, you should go into computer science. Because in her world, if you're black and intelligent, the way you're going to make it is in the, the computer world or the finance world. Like she actually, place for you here. She actually didn't mean it as an insult. She meant it like, you're not this raw, hood, urban talent. You're so intelligent. What are you doing here? You easily make it in the business world. That's all she meant. Right. She right, meant she right. meant that you have choices. You should choose that as a black, probably as a black man. She didn't see the choice that there was. Any- because so because so few of us went on to actually make, you right. know, make their living in the arts. That, that's the reality of the thing. And, and, all and let's yeah. And let's exactly for better, or for worse. She also was she knew the landscape of the business. She was like, there's not a place that I can see. You might get something here or there, but you're so intelligent being cast as the bodyguard or the the best friend, the asexual best friend or whatever, that's going to crush your spirit. Mm. But I had a plan. But I, in my mind, I said, but that's not how I'm going to be cast as. I'm going to be cast as John. Because the high school I went to, I was cast as John Proctor in The Crucible. And I was cast as Starbuck in 110 in the Shade. So I didn't understand what she was talking about. Because the high school I came from, I was the one. As most of us were coming out of high school. Sure, yeah. sure. That's interesting that that you yeah. that you, part of your arc is from John Proctor to George Washington. That's very interesting. But uh, what about your casting <laughs> yes. when you were in the theater school? How did you feel about your casting while you were in school? Uh, my third year. Oh, uh, well, second year intros. It was pretty okay because every they you know their goal was to give out some equity there so everyone had a chance to do stuff um and then third year came and i was like workshop workshop children show workshop you know kind of thing but then something happened i was in the the kids show cinderella where i played just a background almost marionette thing it was soul crushing and i was like why am i in my third year but i'm not actually doing a role i'm not actually acting and meanwhile the people you would expect are doing and it was what dr bella was probably trying to warn me about well in one of the workshops uh somebody dropped out because something happened in their life their parent got sick or something happened they had to drop out and rick murphy came to me and said hey you've got the time because you're in the daytime show can you jump into this play in the workshop and do double duty? And I ended up playing opposite Gillian Anderson in Serious Money 
and um, and Carol Churchill's Serious Money. So it was a Carol Churchill play. It was really complicated. She was playing Hacinda Condor, and I was her colleague, Nigel Ajibala, and we were scamming everyone in the play, but only the two of us knew that we weren't even really those people. We were We had put on those guises. And so to have Jillian, who you probably know this from doing lots of interviews, was very ignored and very like, treated as the crazy girl in the corner. And me, who was very ignored, the way the two of us put that together, I knew like, oh, there are parts like this out there that I can find. There, there are cool plays and cool parts, and there's Chicago is one city, but there's London, there's New York, there's the world, there's Sydney. So that was my key. And then uh, in the fall of my senior year, they did Working, the musical, and I was cast as Loving Al, which I grew to love, but at first I ran to Betsy Hamilton and I said, why am I cast as the black male who's uh, a valet, you know, parking cars? And she was like, it's a great part. <laughs> but you know, you know, sometimes you're so dumb as a teenager, you know, you're so like, I wanna play this other thing but nobody in this school can do that role but you. And then your other role is a great subtle role, the Mason. It's a great role that has a lot of detail with mime. So you're, you're good. But I had, I had it out with her that night and she said, well, you gonna quit the show or not? Cause I need to know what you're doing. She, she you really, us, well, I, when that was presented to me, I said, well, no. And she said, good, so get to work. Oh, did, was she directing it? Yeah. Directed all the musicals. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's interesting. Then. Yeah, we had all the same professors, and um, we've we've had a few great Don Ilko stories. I'm here. Mostly, what people end up saying is that he, and this is true for me. He was my champion. He was. I felt he was my only champion there. Did you have a champion, mm -hmm. or was it Don? It, uh, Don was my challenge. He was my silent champion. He never spoke, but but he always had a wink and a nod to me. Cause, but, but he, he again, he also knew how hard it would be. So he wasn't like championing me. It was Rick Murphy for me. Okay. He brought me back after I graduated to help him with the second year classes. And so I'd often sit in on the classes and so that, cause I, I you know, my presence would help them relax a little. I was the go-between. So Rick Murphy was definitely my champion and Jim Osterhoff. Really? Which sounds crazy. I know, I saw like, uh? It sounds nuts, but Jim Osterhoff, in my senior year, the last week of classes, he we all sat around in the class, the last 12 of us who were there, whatever it was, not too many. And he said, Stovall, you're the surprise guy. You're the, you're the, you're the supernova. And I said, why is that? And he said, well, you're black. You came out. You're you're gonna go at this world in a different way than everyone else. And I'll never forget, two or three of the kids were like, I thought everybody knew he was gay. <laughs> like, but that that's like, that's like white privileged teenagers who want some attention. Yes. We're like. It's like Ostelhoff, Ostelhoff for me too. He was the one who said, you're you're the next Lenny Bruce. And I, I thought it was an insult at the time. <laughs> But now I'm like, oh my God, he was trying to give me 
like the chutzpah, the, the yeah. you know, to go on and know. And, and so I am grateful. So I think what I'm hearing too is like hearing stuff about Rick and hearing what, what I always am is like everyone's champions look different and they're not always champions to everybody else. And they're all, they're not, they're, they can be very problematic people for other people. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. yeah. it's just, yeah. it's so interesting. Some people, cause you know, whatever. I knew nothing about David Avcali or, uh, what's the guy who was, uh, Bella's sort John of. John Jenkins? Oh. Mm. No, oh, I love John Jenkins. Mark? He was in a... Mark, the music guy? No, no, no. I, I love Mark Elliott. Uh, I just saw him not too long ago. He was an acting teacher, and he was very stiff to me, and he was sort of with Bella. Bill Burnett? Sort of... No, no, no. I liked Bill. This was acting teacher. Bill was voice. It's, I, I don't even remember. Maybe they yeah, got rid of that guy. We don't know, yeah. Uh, he was there for a long, long time, but I think he may have left. Yeah, I don't know. Anyway, there were some teachers that I never got, so I never really knew what their style was even. I never got to know David Alcali. I never got to know some of these people. But Rick Murphy noticed in me that improv or thinking on my feet was for, was for whatever reason something I did well. And when I did the scene, it was never the same twice. So I was always alert. And I think that goes back to surviving as a black man in America. You have to be aware of what's going on around you. And so he helped me to he helped me to feed that and, and help it grow. What's your a few of your characteristics that are coming across to me, in addition to this awareness and sense of self, is also maybe your lack of fear. You didn't, you weren't cowed at the audition or early on in terms of, you know, your Mm-mm. your talent level. Do you attribute that to your parents um, instilling kind of a, a sense of bravery and confidence in you? Or did you discover it truly on your own? I think it's twofold. I think if... I don't think they instilled it as a matter of purposeful installation. I think I watched them, so I witnessed it. And so you absorb what's around you. I watched my mom work a full-time job and come home and cook. Yeah, I watched that. I watched my dad. I watched it. And I watched them deal with racism. I watched them save, 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 save money and continue to move us to a different house every five or six years. It would be bigger. Like, I I watched what they did. But I think also just, you know, watching TV and not seeing anybody who looked like me. And so not going into auditions and situations with a sense of I'll never get it, but going into situations like, what do I have to lose? Mm, yeah, it's right. it, it's not it's probably it's probably not going to be me, but I'm sure going to show them that they need to think about it. Right, yeah. right, and that and that it becomes a mission to not prove yourself, but also to um, be yourself boldly and allow the opportunity at least to be in the ether that you could play that part that you could do it if they were more open-minded or they were more instead of being like how can i change so that they feel comfortable it's like how can i just do my do my work do the art right i i yeah i never tried to be i never tried to be gary mills or darren boucher or i never tried to be that i just said well if i'm playing judas or if I'm playing Jesus and Jesus Christ Superstar, this is how it's going to be. <laughs> Take it or leave it. Well, how was your showcase experience? Did you guys, did you go to New York and LA? How was, did you go, what happened? 
we only went to New York and, you know, it was fine. It was one of those things where everybody got a lot of attention and I got one or two nibbles. But, you know, I wasn't too worried about it because uh, in April of senior year, myself and Yolanda Androzo, the other black female in the in my graduating class, we drove up to Minneapolis and auditioned for this black show. This uh, They were doing a Caribbean adaptation of Medea called Picong by Stephen Carter. You know, small regional theater, but she had researched it and said, we should do this. We should do this. You know, we should start our careers. Let's do this. So I had a car too, and she didn't. So we, you know, we drove up and it was more for her to audition. But I said, well, since I'm here, I might as well audition. Well, we got cast. So, so going out of, you know, for the last two months of school, we knew we had rehearsal starting in some show in Minneapolis, which just felt cool, even if we didn't know if it was going to be cool or not. And so the, the consort, what is it called? The, that you just said? The thing in New York, no, the thing in New York, the showcase, it, it didn't, it didn't make or break me because I was like, yeah, I'm starting work soon. But so I got some, I got some half nibbles from some agents, but I, it wasn't a, for me, that didn't do much. Yeah. But, but did but you, being okay, in so that show, is that what, oh, sorry, go ahead, Buzz. No, no, that's exactly what I was going to say. So you, you, you went to, and you did the show and, and really, when did you feel like, okay, like I'm going to, or maybe you didn't, like I am an actor that's going to make money being an actor. I can do this as, as a, as a, uh, as a career. Well, that's a bit of a story. So I get there to rehearsals and I was cast in a supporting role. And then the, the theater, they had a, they had a show from last season that was going to the National Black Theater Festival. And the actor who was playing the lead in the show I was in, he was the lead in that show. And they wanted him to go to do the show Pill Hill, I think it was called, down in North Carolina. So they came to me and said, would you move up to the role of Jason? You know, Jason and Medea, basically. And I'm a recent college graduate who doesn't know anything. And I said, yeah, sure. So, <laughs> so, so I start rehearsal and it's not going well. Uh, it's a lot of work and it's, it's, it's overwhelming. And the woman who's playing Medea is trying to get me to hang out and party and relax so she's after rehearsal on the sixth day she says come on the cast is going out for drinks leave your script please leave your script you're always in your damn script come on out with us and i said no just drop me off at the apartment uh they had me living with her actually and her boyfriend until they got my housing ready and i said no i'm not gonna go out so i go home she drops me off and her boyfriend was kind of a, a ne'er-do-well guy and uh, I'm on the phone actually with Jillian Anderson, who had gone out to LA and was on some cop show that she thought was really dumb called The X Files that was never going to go anywhere. And she's telling me about how stupid it is, and she's got to wear a gun in her underwear and her panties. And uh, and I'm like, well, at least you're working, girl. Don't worry. And I said, but Jillian, I think I might get fired. And she said, well, you know, you might get fired, but I got fired from a job, an Alan Ackborn play, and you know, you you move on. So keep working, and if you get fired, it's gonna be okay. And right then a knock came on the door of the apartment, and so I got off the phone with her. Long story short, some people had come looking for this, this boyfriend guy, 
And without going too much into all the minutia of it, we'll go have a beer one day and talk about it. They broke in and shot me in both my legs and they left me for dead. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Oh my God. What the fuck? They shot oh. in your legs? Well, they shot through the door, so they didn't know where they had shot me. They they thought they were shooting me in my head and my back, but I heard the hammer of the gun click, so I jumped away from the door. And when the shots came through, they just hit me in my legs. So, you know, fast forward to being, uh, you know, re, you know, I woke back up when the paramedics put the thing on my face and um, an evening of surgeries in the hospital and you know, my mom flew up and I, I could not walk. And they said, well, you're never going to walk again, but you you may walk again, but you're certainly never going to dance again. And you'll you'll have a cane probably. And um, I, had, I developed blood clots. It was just the whole thing. So now I was now I was a 21 year old black gay closeted and I got addicted to the uh, Coumadin and the painkillers. So I was a 21-year-old black gay closeted drug addict in a wheelchair. <laughs> Whoa. So what, what happened? <laughs> I'm glad you could laugh about it. My jaw is still on the floor. Oh, my God. So, you know, I just started doing the work to get better. I was like, I'm not going to sit in this chair forever. And I'm, I need to stop taking these pills. And I need to just deal with the pain and work through it. And uh, the city of Chicago was sort of waiting for, hoping I would live and hoping I could come home. And some of my classmates had come up to visit. Matt Scharf and Amy Peets had come up to visit. And Monica Trombetta, I think, came up. Um, and so when I finally went back to Chicago, I did have a bit the cane and a bit of a limp, but it, it was getting better every day. And I had this sense that I was going to be okay. Someone had dropped out of Frank Galati's production of Good Person of Szechuan with Cherry Jones. And they just had to replace one, yeah, the Goodman. And they had to replace one like side character. Didn't even have any lines. It was just a street hustler kid who was just filling out the ensemble. But Frank had a plan that throughout the course of the play, you'd see in opposition to uh, Shante Shuita's transformation, this boy would slowly transition into a woman. So I did have a sort of silent film arc through the play, which was right up my alley. I love that shit. So they gave me the part, those dummies. And the next thing I know, I'm at the... I'm at the Goodman, and I'm doing did this you, play. Wait, did you have to audition, or they just asked you to do it? Or? It was it was it was an audition because they hadn't seen me and they didn't know how I would look. They didn't know like, is he really injured? Is he really? How does he look? But when I so they they reached out and said, "Would you like to come in? Can you can you come in?" And I'm like, I'm like, yeah, 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 I can come in, I can come in. And I showed up, and Michael Maggio just like hugged me. Oh my God, you're okay. And I said, Yeah, 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 it's okay. I have pain, but I'm okay. And they had me do a monologue of some other character because my character didn't have any lines. It was Jim True's character, uh, Wang or whatever. Yeah. And um, he said, okay, Paul, you know what? Um, we're not doing, doing all this BS. I want you to walk right up to the office. You're hired. Because they start rehearsal like next week. They, they needed to just get it done. You know. And I took it. And I never looked back. So then Mary Zimmerman was a mentee of Frank Alotti. 
So, of course, she came to see it and said, who is that athletic, strong? And Frank goes, funny story about you thinking he's athletic and strong. He's just come through this thing. And she said, well, can he read difficult text? And Frank said, I think so. He doesn't have lines in this, but he strikes me as a really intelligent kid. And she had me just sit across the table from her and read from the books of Leonardo da Vinci. And she gave me the part. And then I was in Notebooks of Leonardo da Vinci, the original cast. And that was it. That is amazing. And then, and then that was it. Yeah. Right, that was right. when I said that thing I thought about Bella, that, that there will be these kooky parts that will be for me. I can find a world where next thing I'm doing Journey to the West and I'm playing a, a you know, a invincible seahorse dragon the creature. Like these are the things I knew I could do if given the chance. That's amazing. I, I, I Something that is occurring to me as you're talking too is that one of your superpowers is, you know, and I wish all young people who are going into this profession could somehow absorb this quality, but of course you can't, which is that you never waited for anybody to save you or to, you know, shepherd you. Like you just, from the beginning, it sounds like, just always knew that it was up to you and that there was nobody who was going to come in like cast a magical spell on your legs. By the way, was somebody in violation of an equity rule when they put you in housing with this uh, actress and her boyfriend? Yeah, but it was 1991. I see. And 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 the housing was being prepared. Okay. I, so so it was a temporary fix. In fact, in fact they were like it's a hotel or you can stay in the guest room of your leading lady and you guys get a chance to sort of be around each other. He just happened to be living with her and it, they didn't understand that that was a thing. I see. Okay. Well, that's And I and I was not able back then to speak up and say, I need to get out of this. I, I, I have a feeling he's a bad guy. You know, that, that's not going to wash. That's not going to wash. Right, right. You know, they're, they're trying to save money. Yeah. You know. My next question is, so like, just being mindful of time, like, um, that we have with you. What would you say? Like, it's interesting because you kept saying, you keep saying, like, oh, then I knew, and then I knew, and then <laughs> I knew. So, are you still discovering, like, what you want to do as an artist, where you want to go? Like, you're going through this tumultuous time with your family, and you've decided to step back from playing George Washington and Hamilton. What is happening in where do you want to go? What do you want to do? Oh, well, I mean, you know, I had stepped away from I've stepped away from acting before. I, I went to work in politics in 2007 when everybody was talking about it, but nobody was doing it. I left the business and went to volunteer for the Obama campaign. And next thing I know, I got hired as an actual employee and I spent eight years traveling the world. I'm here. I am in New Delhi in a in a market of artisans with Mrs. Obama. I'm like, what am I doing? I'm like, when is someone going to figure me out? You know, I'm in Copenhagen with the queen of Denmark and we're hanging out and she's like, do you want to smoke a cigarette? I'm like, I don't smoke, but <laughs> oh my God, this is so funny. Like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm in these situations where I couldn't have written a better script for me to perform my duties working for them. We're in Seoul, we're in South Korea, we're, in, we're everywhere. So when that came to an end or when it was coming to an end, um, I was writing a lot of plays and Felicia Rashad had read one of them. And that's how 
she picked up Immediate Family and that went to Goodman and Mark Taper. And so I was kind of in that playwright mode. So I bounce wherever I, like I'm going back to work for Mrs. Obama after this. By the way, because, what? One, one, once you're in the family, you're always in. And I think um, she has a new book tour coming and it'll be a chance for me to help out. You know, it's not the same thing. She's not first lady anymore. It's it's more relaxed a little bit, but that's there for me to do and keep myself busy. And then I can spend time with my mother. That's awesome. So it's good. By the way, way to seamlessly work in your experience in the Obama administration. I was sitting here thinking, like, we don't have enough time. I'm not going to be able to ask him about it. <laughs> um, but there well, are- I mean, that's actually what has helped me with Washington the most. Mm-hmm. Right. Yes, yeah. Of course. Sure. Sure. Yeah. What, sure. If someone were to say to you, because there's a lot of conservatories are like, you only are an actor. You must be an actor. What is your uh, take on if some if a, a person comes to you and say, hey, I have interests in this, in that. What should I go to a conservatory where they're telling me like you are an actor and that's it? What do you what would you say about that? Because I wish that I had had more something to do more things as a young. Yeah. Kid. I would say beware and go running from anybody who tells you you can only be one thing. I mean, one thing that happens with Hamilton a lot is afterwards, there are a lot of young people um, who want to meet us and get a playbill signed. And the cast, uh, pre-COVID, they would make fun of me because as we went down the line signing uh, programs, I would take the longest. So I I just decided to always wait and go last because I want to talk to these kids and say, especially the young girls who are dressed as Eliza or Angelica, Peggy, I'd say, oh, that's a beautiful outfit you have on. What do you think about Aaron Burr? And nine times out of 10, oh, he's actually my favorite or Alexander Hamilton's actually my favorite. So why aren't you dressed as them? Well, my mom and dad, and the mom and dad are standing right there and they sort of try to chime in. I'm like, "Uh uh-uh, I'm not speaking to you. Speaking to this intelligent 10 or 11 year old who is telling you she wants to be Aaron Burr. And I would say, well, you, and, and listen, we're not talking about sexuality or gender or anything. We're just talking about access. We're talking about access to what someone's told they can do or not do. So I really, um, you know, one of the saddest things about leaving the show is I, I won't have as often the opportunity that I have to tell young people, please be well-rounded. I do ask them, what do you want to be? And when they don't know, I say, oh, thank goodness you don't know because you're way too young to have made that decision. You need to do eight or nine things, do them all 100%, and the thing will find you. Ah, I wish someone had said that to me. You know, and the other thing that I'm, Paul, that I'm really aware of is that as you go through the world, whatever you do, Paul, you are going to be that ambassador for young folks, whether it's with Michelle Obama or the cast of Hamilton. So I feel like you you are the kind of artist and the kind of human being that whatever environment you are in, you're going to be an ambassador for choice and and um and well-roundedness. So I, I have no doubt that wherever you are on the Obama tour, book tour, you're going to be there and people are going to be drawn to you because it's about you. It's not necessarily about the job you're doing. Well, you got to be careful with that. I was talking to uh, one of my friends who, you know, I told him I'm I'm going back out with her and he's so excited. He's like, Oh, you know, you, you've upgraded your clothes and you're going to just be, I'm like, "Uh, uh, uh." when you're working in a situation like that, the, the goal is, and the, the dictum is to not stick out. 
So it's that fine line of where do I find my in my free time to do that? But when I'm at work with her, it's this it's this thing of like you are, which is a fun acting experience experiment for me. I love being the press guy who's that's what I'm doing. Yeah, yeah because you, you can yeah. do it. Uh-huh. And also you yeah. can do it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. it's not, yeah. but I just think you're the kind of person that people are going to find you in an elevator and be like, hey, <laughs> how, do I, how do I do what you do? Because I, I could sense that. Or like, how yeah. do I do this? Yeah. Yeah. Can, yeah. yeah, that happens quite a bit. So um, I, I want to have an opportunity to ask you about your production company and yeah. the exciting stuff you've got going on there. So please tell us. It's called Colonel Forto Productions. Colonel Forto is an Esperanto word that means core power. And um, I got a few short films out that have done very well on the festival circuit. A third one is in post. It's almost ready. And a fourth one, we have just started entering festivals. And it's called Wolf in Waiting. And it's a spy thriller where I'm co-starring with Danilo Carrera. Who, you may ask? Well, he's the most famous television actor in Mexico and <laughs> and he's a model as well and he's the most famous actor in Ecuador which is where he's from but he works mostly in Mexico and how did I meet him you may ask I I was on tour with Hamilton and um, I play a lot of tennis and I got hooked up with uh, this tennis pro at this local place as as we're on the road where was I Naples or somewhere in Florida a year and a half ago, two years ago. And the tennis pro, he enjoyed hitting with me. And he said, I have a 17 year old daughter who'd love to see the show. And I said, yeah, I'll help you get tickets. No problem. And he said, you know, you're an actor, you know, right? So, uh, you know, I have a nephew who's an actor and you should get in touch with him because he wants to branch out and, and do more interesting things. This nephew is Danilo Carrera. I, I, I said, yeah, and you know how it is, y'all. I'm like, oh, you have a nephew that wants to be an actor or is an actor. Okay. And he's like, yeah, he wants to do some English language stuff. I'm like, oh, God, okay. So he gets me in touch with him, and I Google him, and I was like, oh. And I'm like, he's not going to want to work with me, but he has become like a brother to me. He is now, I mean, wait till you see this film, you know. It's crazy. So that's where we're going with the production company. I'm trying to uplift others who are doing projects, my friends who are doing short films and silent short films. I'm trying to put them all on my website and create kernelforto.tv and kind of create my own network where people can pay and come and watch my stuff. Oh, that's a great idea. I love that. Yeah. Um, And because we have like two more minutes, I just wanted to ask you, you have this really interesting connection to Ireland. And I was wondering if you could tell us about that. Yeah. Yeah, I'll quickly tell you. It, I hate to have to do it quickly. Uh, no, you don't have I, to do it quickly. During, if, you, when, if, you, if you have a few minutes, okay. that's fine. I'm just, I'm just saying. Yeah, my voice, my yeah, my voice lesson is going to call soon. Okay, so um, I, I when when the COVID shutdown happened, I got squirrely and I wanted to go somewhere. And this woman who was in a writing group with me, she lived in Ireland, so she would be zooming in from Ireland. And she said, Paul, do you know about Frederick Douglass? And I said, I'm a, in my mind, I said, I'm a college ed- educated black man. I know Frederick Douglass. And she said, yeah, did you know he spent four months in Ireland 
when he was escaping for his life because his former slave owner came after him when he released his autobiography. And I'm like, what? No, he didn't. What are you talking about? And as I researched this, I've realized that's where he wrote some of his most incredible speeches because he went over to Europe running for his life and found a freedom. You know, the people in Ireland were looking at him like, oh, hey, what's up? Like they weren't, and he never experienced that that white people could actually just be like, oh, we, we judge you based on who you are. And that's when he became who he became as an international orator and leader. And when he came back, he was like, I'm going to Abraham Lincoln's office. I'm going to, I'm, he became who he became. So I decided I want to write an eight episode limited series about this. And I decided I need to go to Ireland to research and I'm just going to get there. And I did. And I met these two young guys who are who were opening a music institute for young students, uh, diverse students. And now I've become a board member of that. I was all over RTE. I've got producers interested in helping me do this. So I'm actually going back in March to do some concerts at the new music hall, the Lark, that's opening at the, the Irish Institute of Music and Song. I traveled the whole country to, from Cork to Belfast because that's where I just followed in Frederick's footsteps. And Ireland's become a second home. Oh, that's so beautiful. By the way, what a grand tradition that also um, James Baldwin and Nina Simone, all these people have had to Correct. go to Europe, right? To find, to just feel like a regular person. Yeah, and got, really you know, y'all, I really feel like that's what's coming for me. I, I have had that experience. I went and lived in Stockholm in 99 and 2000. But this Ireland thing is... You know, I've been there for, I was there for three months and then I went back for another yeah, month. you're going to live there at some point for longer. That's, I mean, you know, I'm not, I'm not putting down my country. I love my country, but I'm feeling like there's also a chance to do theater there at the Abbey uh, in Dublin. And there's, there's just an opportunity to work over there. Yeah, and it's good to have options, honestly, because yeah. you, never, <laughs> you never know what's going to happen here. Thank you, Paul. This has been great. It's brilliant. It's you are. Um, I rarely feel at the same time uh, comfortable around someone and yet also wanting inspired to do better. So thank you. Oh, for that. Thank you. Well, let's all thank Gary Mills for mentioning me. Yes. today, please give us a positive five-star review and subscribe and tell your friends. I Survived Theater School is an Undeniable Inc. production. Jen Bosworth Ramirez and Gina Polici are the co-hosts. This episode was produced, edited, and sound mixed by Gina Polici. For more information about this podcast or other goings-on of Undeniable Inc., please visit our website at undeniablewriters.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you.